Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Tell me when. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. All right, first, we're going to be in Nehemiah. We're studying through. For those of you who see either uh, tuning in tonight or checking us out for the first time, we've been studying all the books of the Bible uh, kind of one at a time, uh, methodically, trying to understand how the Bible is put together. And uh, we're up to the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I wouldn't say we're anywhere halfway there, but we're moving through it. And we're going to start, we're going to use 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as a launching off point for something we're going to say in the book of Nehemiah. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where I'm going to get. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, So if you have a handout, I left some on the table. You see some of the vital statistics about Nehemiah, 13 chapters. Uh, 406 verses, 10,480 words. Uh, The time period that it covers is about 446 B.C. to 434 B.C. And if you're trying to put it in a a context, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah are separated by about 11 years. There's about 11 years between those books. And the key words for you to remember if you're taking notes or just making mental notes is that Ezra is the book of the return. It's about people coming back to Jerusalem, a picture of people coming back to God. And Nehemiah is about the book of rebuilding. Now we've got people that have come back to God, they've come back to Jerusalem, and we're building these walls now. And after you come back to the Lord, you've got to kind of strengthen your defenses so the enemy doesn't ransack and pillage you again. So that's the idea. The author is Nehemiah, and Nehemiah I'm not going to get into all of it because I'm only going to do this in one night. But Nehemiah is a fantastic study. If you want to study the model worker for God, go through the book of Nehemiah and see all the things that Nehemiah did. There'll be a lesson to you about how you can build something for the Lord. And the other thing about Nehemiah is he was a man of prayer. Two big takeaways about Nehemiah. He was a worker for God, the model worker, And he was a man of prayer. You know what that tells me? Those go together. And you're going to find two words in the book of Nehemiah showing up over and over again. uh, Prayer and work. Prayer and work. Prayer and work. Uh, The key idea is rebuilding your walls for the Lord. Right? Ezra was about getting yourself back to God. Right? Look at 1 Corinthians 3.11. This is a part of our building process as Christians. And I'm going to take for granted you're a Christian that you've taken the name of Jesus Christ and received Jesus Christ as the payment of your sins. That's what the Bible defines as a Christian. And in 1 Corinthians 3.11, the Bible says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So God lays a foundation when you take Jesus Christ as your Savior. God already laid that foundation 2,000 years ago at Calvary. Jesus Christ is the rock, not Peter. Jesus says He is the rock. He's the rock of our salvation. God put that bedrock down when Jesus Christ died on the cross, and then when you and I enter into that salvation, we get Get on that rock, and God puts that foundation in our lives. That's the coming back to God. That's where it all starts, amen? But Nehemiah is, okay, now I'm on that rock. Now I got that foundation. What am I supposed to do? Don't be like most Christians that are just a bump on a pew. You want to do something for God. You want to build something for God. You want to see your life count and see God do something amazing with yourself because He gave you this great gift, amen? You ever think about that? God gave you... His son. Now, having a son that went through some stuff over the last few years, I wouldn't give him up for any of you. 
and I like you. You're my friends. You're the best people I know. But you know what? If there was 10 million of you in church on Sunday morning, and I could trade you all for my son, I'd take my son every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Now you think about Jesus Christ and the Father. The Father gave His Son, gave His very best for people like me and people like you, amen, right? For people that would sin against Him and rip out His beard and mock Him while He stood there naked on the cross and He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's an amazing salvation. God gave you something amazing. You may have a nice car or a nice house. That's nothing compared to what Jesus Christ is living inside you right now. He's a rock that you could build something amazing on. And in 1 Corinthians 3.12, the next verse says, okay, the foundation's laid. Now it says, now if any man build upon this foundation. Once God lays the foundation in your life, then God says, okay, now you can build something with your life. Before it didn't count. You could have gone to church for 40 years. You could have given all your money to save the whales, whatever it was. But none of that stuff is counting in terms of eternity. You've got to lay the foundation first, and then God says, now you can build. So, let's remember. In the Old Testament... God was building a kingdom of heaven, right? This went back from our first study many, many months ago. He was building a political kingdom through a nation called Israel. And you know what he gave Israel? He gave Israel a promised land, amen? He gave Israel the law, and he gave Israel leaders, prophets and priests and kings, and a structure that he would organize and govern by, and he gave Israel everything they needed to bring in a political kingdom on earth. And we know what happens, right? We studied it. Their sin destroyed everything. Even though God gave them everything, sin destroys everything. So here we are in the New Testament. The New Testament, we're not building a political kingdom. I think you should vote and vote for the guy that's the least knucklehead. But you know what? In the New Testament, we're building a spiritual kingdom of God. And he's not working through the nation right now. He's working through the church. You know what he gave the church, meaning us today? You know what he gave the church? He gave the church the promised Holy Spirit. That's our guide. He gave the church his word. That's our roadmap. And he gave his church a structure and an organization called the local New Testament church. Why? So you could build and be safe. And just like he gave Israel a structure, he gave the church a structure. And when you and I scorn that structure, you'll never build the way you're supposed to build. You can come back to God, you can get your sins right, you can get saved. But if you scorn the vehicle that God has ordained for you to be safe, to be protected, and to grow the right way, you'll never build the way God wants you to build, right? This thing called the local church, and it's not, we're not the only local church. There's many Bible-believing local churches in the world and in the country, but that thing called the local church is the structure that God says, I want you to work in and minister in so you build the right way and you put some walls up, Nehemiah, that'll keep you safe. So let's go to Nehemiah right now. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2. This is all just introduction. We have very long introductions. (laughs) Those of us that came from Staten Island, we have very long introductions. 
Some introductions are an hour long, but this one's not. All right, Nehemiah chapter 2. Let me get there with you. So Jesus Christ is always pictured as somebody in every book of the Bible. And in Nehemiah 2.17, Jesus Christ is pictured as our rebuilder. Isn't that a blessing? Jesus Christ helps you rebuild what was destroyed by sin. He'll take you back, but He doesn't just wash you and just say, okay, now stay here until I blow the trumpet. He takes you back and He'll rebuild your family, rebuild your mind, rebuild your, your, the way you see the world. He's, he's a rebuilder. And Nehemiah is inspiring the people to build these walls. And it's like Jesus Christ is speaking there. And in 2.17, Nehemiah says, Ye see the distress that we are in? And how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. That's a picture of Jesus Christ encouraging us and inspiring us to build something for God. No matter what the distress is out there, build something up for the Lord. So if you're looking at your sheet, um, you see a very simple breakdown of the book. Chapters 1 to 6, we are rebuilding the physical walls with Nehemiah. And chapters 7 to 13, we're rebuilding the spiritual walls with Ezra. Now, we've said that there are three ways you could take every verse of the Bible, right? Anybody remember what they are? Three applications of every verse of the Bible. Spiritual. What's the other one? Doctrinal and Historical. Very good class. You get a gold star. There might be one laying around here somewhere next to a kukaracha. I don't know what's going on here. But anyway, um, historically, the book of Nehemiah is what actually happened in Israel. What actually happened in Jerusalem when they rebuilt the walls. 52 days. They rebuilt the walls in 52 days. They can't fill a pothole in 52 days. I don't know what kind. There was definitely not a union job because there's no way a union shop would build the walls in 52 days. You know what I'm talking about. You have to have the flag guy, the shovel guy. You got this coffee break twice in three hours. You know, I'm, I carry a card too, so don't get offended. But I mean, I just think about 52 days. Those guys were working for their money. But um, they rebuild the walls. It really happened doctrinally, okay? What does the book of Nehemiah tell us about God? Well, it's what's happening, now follow me now, what's happening in Nehemiah is a picture of what's happening in the Middle East right where we live right now. 1917 is a date you should know. 1917 was the Balfour Declaration. 1917, a Gentile secretary who became prime minister named Lord Balfour in England made a declaration that the land of Palestine is supposed to be a home for the Jews. My, 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 near the end of the times of the Gentiles, a Gentile ruler stood up and said, the Jews need to go back to that land, it's theirs. Isn't that just like Cyrus? who stood up and said, you know what, these Jews need to go back to their land. What happened in the past, folks, is what's happening in the future, and that's what's going on here, right? Now, keep going with me. 1948 is another year that you should know. 1948, what happens in 1948? Israel is recognized as a nation, right? That's not an accident. Right? 1917, there's a declaration. 1948, there's a recognition. And what's happening right now? Nehemiah. Ezra is when they came back, and Nehemiah is what's happening right now. Nehemiah is when, you know, man, 
Nehemiah is when they're rebuilding these walls and they're putting these walls in place. And what's Israel doing? Israel is establishing boundaries now. That's what Israel's been doing for the past maybe 50 or 60 years. They're fighting over boundaries. They're trying to set up divisions. They're trying to establish their borders. That's what was happening in Nehemiah's day. And that's what's happening in our day now. And they're waiting for their king to come back. And he'll be there in hopefully about five minutes. All right? I don't know if it's that soon. Now, that's the doctrinal look. How you doing, man? Uh, That's the doctrinal look of the book. What's the last one you said was a spiritual look at the book? What does this say about us? Well, it's about a Christian who's trying to build up some walls of protection through the local church. You know why we're here? To help each other, protect each other, and kind of grow the right way and be a safeguard to each other. So let's go to chapter 1. What I like to do now for all our folks maybe tuning in for the first time is just go through some of the big ideas and some of the Bible pictures of the book of Nehemiah. So we're in the Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm just going to pull out a few ideas here that maybe will uh, rock your world a little bit. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's look at verse number 1. So the first big idea that we take away from the book of Nehemiah is that if your heart is right, you'll be at the right place at the right time. If you're, See, we get it always backwards. We want to figure out circumstances so we get the best result. But you know what? You can't control circumstances, right? You can devise your way, but the Lord has to direct your steps. And you have to worry about your heart. You keep your heart with all diligence. God says out of that is the issue of life. And you're going to see that Nehemiah is the guy that all of a sudden he's in the right place at the right time. Why? Because he had a heart for God and a heart for God's people. And folks... Everything about your life. If you're sitting here today and you don't know if you're saved today, you know what? Changing your circumstances and fixing all this stuff out here will not help you in the long run. You've got to have a, you have a heart problem between you and God. And when you fix that heart problem, God can start to work in your life. It's the same thing as a Christian. We're like, should I take this job? Should I marry this person? Do I go left? Do I go right? I don't know. You need to work on your heart. And if your heart is right with God, the Lord can just move you around and open doors and close doors. Ideally, you've got to deal this way before you get so hung up on what's going on this way. But Nehemiah 1 is a picture of that. Let's read from verse 1 to verse 6. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, And it came to pass in the month Kislu, in the twentieth year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass that when I heard these words, that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven, and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments, let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel thy servants and confess the sins of the children of Israel which we have sinned against thee both I and my father's house have sinned. Please notice in verse number one Nehemiah just happens to be in the palace when Hanani is coming in with this information about Jerusalem. 
He just happens to be at the right place at the right time. You say, why did God let Nehemiah be in the right place at the right time? Verse number 2 and 3, you see Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah has got a broken heart for the ruined city of his father's. And he's sitting there, he's thinking about Jerusalem, and he's thinking about his people, and he's just ruminating about it, and he's upset about it. And you know what? At that moment, this guy walks in, and this whole conversation ensues. You say, is that an accident? Well, then you don't know God very well. Because God sees your heart, and he says, you know what? If you've got the right heart towards me, I'll put you in the right place at the right time, and you might be devising your way, but I'm directing your steps. Just keep your heart in tune with me. And Nehemiah is a great picture that if we would just keep our heart right, think about the right stuff, meditate on the right things, God will open doors. God will close doors. God will make conversations come your way. God will put people in your path. Why? Because He knows you have the right heart. Amen? Amen. Now, in a spiritual way, if you look at verse number 3, he's talking about the walls broken down. He's talking about the gates being burned with fire. What is this picture for us in 2023? Can you believe it? As Christians, what is this picture for us? This picture is the sad state of a broken down believer. You go to Proverbs chapter 25. Oh, we're going to flip. We'd like to flip around verses here. So Proverbs 25, verse number 28. Proverbs 25, 28. All right, Proverbs 25, 28. Look at this. Proverbs 25, 28. All right. You're like that city, Jerusalem. You're like that city. And look at this parallel here. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. You know if a city in ancient times didn't have walls? You know what happened? People came and took stuff out and you couldn't keep the good stuff in. And if you can't get control of some things, if you can't get victory of some things, if you never get plugged into God's program and build up some spiritual walls for your life, guess what? The enemy is going to walk in and take stuff out, and you're not going to be able to hold on to the things you want to hold on to, whether it's joy or peace or whatever, sanity sometimes, uh, victory. The enemy is going to come and break things down. And Nehemiah is so upset about the fact that he hears about this city that was so broken down and pillaged. We should be upset. We hear about a Christian whose life is going shipwrecked when we see our own lives go shipwrecked. You know why it is? We never got control of our spirit. We never got plugged into God's program. We never applied the principles of this book to build and grow. We never set up any walls by plugging into a New Testament church and doing things God's way, and the enemy just said, I'm going to take your joy, I'm going to take your peace, I'm going to take your safety, I'm going to take all the stuff that's precious to you, because your city's broken down and without walls. It broke up Nehemiah, it should break you up. So let's go back to Nehemiah again, that's a big picture right there. Let's go to Nehemiah 3. Now this one might rock your world, I hope it does, it rocked my world when I was studying this years ago for something. So in Nehemiah chapter 3, they actually go rebuild the walls. You're going to see them in action. All right. Now, on the back of your handout is a little diagram. Because they, they rebuild these gates as they're rebuilding the walls. And 
the gates they rebuild tell an amazing story. It's another testimony that God wrote the Bible. I know I say it jokingly that God wrote the Bible, but when you see stuff like this, I remember being like, this is maybe seven, eight years ago. I was just studying this for somewhere I had to go preach in Long Island, I think. And I was studying this and I remember seeing it and seeing it. And I called up my pastor, Mike. I was like, Pastor Mike, you know this is in the Bible? He's like, yes, I know. It's a very fascinating study. But I mean, it's just an amazing thing. And the way I want to look at it tonight is as they rebuild these gates, it's a blueprint for how to build the church. It's all right here, hiding in plain sight. Ready? I'm going to show you where they start. Nehemiah 3.1. First gate. Then Eliashib, the high priest. Now, I, I could preach for two hours just on this. Hi, visitors. I almost gave. But I'm not going to. Uh, but I'm going to do like a quick over this. And you could study each of these gates out and like go deep and enjoy. It's very rich. But it says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brethren, the priest, and they builded the sheep gate. The first gate they rebuilt was the sheep gate. You know why they had that sheep gate there? The sheep gate was where the sheep were brought in for the temple sacrifices. They started with the sheep that had to be sacrificed for their sins. And notice that that gate was built by whom? It was built by the high priest and his brethren, right? It was built by Jesus Christ is our high priest. And we're supposed to be believer priests, right? We're supposed to be starting with that sacrificial lamb, that sheep that has to be slain for sins. That's where you start building everything. You know what this is a picture of? Salvation. That's where everything has to start, with that lamb, without blemish and without spot. Listen, there is no church at all if there isn't the message of Jesus Christ being preached. There is no salvation if the lamb's blood wasn't shed. There is nothing to talk about if that Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, didn't apply the blood to the doorposts of your heart. There's nothing to talk about. There's nothing to build on. So I want to build a church. I want to start with that sheep, that sacrifice, that lamb, that that thing God gave us to atone for our sins. Please notice that on this gate, there were no locks. The other gates all have locks. This has no lock. Because God said, whosoever will, let him come. Right? Let him come. This is where the building begins in your personal life and in our church's life. You know, what it's, you know how this church started? Like every church starts. We were out on the street trying to lead people to Jesus Christ, give Bibles out, give tracts out, uh, go into fairs, because everything starts with you just bringing that sacrifice in and trying to get that sacrifice in front of people. Now look at the second gate, verse 3. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassanana build, who also laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. Please notice that the next gate is the fish gate. That's where the fishermen brought in their catch. Follow me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. You know, there's a picture of evangelism, right? public ministry, going out and being a witness. How does a church start? A church starts when somebody sees that sacrifice, that lamb that was shed, whose blood was shed, and that's where things begin. You know what? People get saved. You know what you want to do if you got saved? If you're really saved, you know what's got to be in you if you're walking with God? A desire to see other people saved. You might be bashful. You might be shy. I am. 
my idea of a good time is sitting by a beach and reading a book. I mean, that, that would be my idea of a good time. If I didn't have to talk to people and just pet my dog, I, I, I'd be okay. You know, I mean, I heard a preacher say one time, the longer he works with people, the more he likes dogs. Now, I like people, but I do like my dog a lot. All right? I really do. He's my best friend, I think. No. But, I, but you know what? You have something in you that wants to go even when your dog goes into the cupboard and steals chocolate and doesn't want to give it up like he did this afternoon. That was this afternoon. I came home, and they, I have an Irish terrier, and they're nicknamed Red Devils, and he was living up to his title today. Anyway, um, but you know what? If that Holy Spirit's inside you, and you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, don't you want to tell somebody else? Don't you want to help somebody else? Don't you want to see somebody else get the blessing, get the victory, get, get the help you got? Well, that's the next step, folks. Sheepgate, fishgate. You know what we got? We got a bunch of fishermen here. And fisher ladies, fisher persons. All right, I'll be magnanimous. We got some fisher persons here. You got a net that you can cast, and God says, cast that net, man, and I'll tell you, that I'll let you bring in some, some fish, right? Uh, third gate, verse number six. Moreover, the old gate repaired Jehoiada, the son of Pisea, and Meshulam, the son of Besodia. I think that's how you say their names. They laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof and the locks thereof and the bars thereof. Can I tell you the next gate is the old gate? You know what the old gate is? It's a picture of God's ways. And then once you get a church going, right, you get people saved, you talk about that lamb, that sheep gate, you go out and try to get some other fish. You know, it really strengthens the church and fortifies a church when you find the godly heritage you're supposed to have and the way God wants you to do things that He's told you from the beginning in His book. That's how a church is built the right way. As we grow in grace personally and as a church, we should be learning God's ways. And God's ways are old ways. We have an old book, we tell an old story, we sing old hymns, we have an old God, right? God says, ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? we got so many problems now because everybody wants to do something different. I got a new Bible, I got a new method of evangelism, I got a new way to conduct church politics, I got a new this. How about this? This is a crazy idea. How about we just see what God said about it, and as best we can, I know nobody hits it 100%, but the best we can is God allows us to understand, we're going to try to do it the way God said to do it. If we look weird, amen. If we look like outcasts, praise the Lord. If we look like, what do you guys do? What are you guys singing? What are you guys preaching? You stand on the street with signs? Bless God, right? I mean, I'd rather be in God's minority than be rolling with the majority. And um, notice what happens in verse number 8. Once they get the old gate repaired, you know what happens in verse 8? Next unto him repaired Uziel, the son of Herea, of the goldsmith. Next unto him also repaired Hanani, the son of one of the apothecaries. And they fortified Jerusalem unto the broad wall. They got stronger when they repaired the old gate. And you make a church stronger and you fortify the walls when you restore the old paths and you get back to the old-time religion of what God said to do in His book. That's how a church gets some strength, by seeing how God does things and just saying, Lord, whatever way you say to do it, I'm going to do it. And that's the best way to do it. Uh, Go to verse uh, 13. Again, You could apply these gates to the growth of an individual as a Christian, but also the growth of a church. We're doing both. Look at verse number uh, 13. The valley gate. The valley gate. Oh, we know about the valley, don't we? 
know what the valley's about? It's about trials and afflictions. And uh, when you get saved, and even when a church gets started, there's a honeymoon. <laughs> it's like peas and carrots. Everything is like answered prayer and victory and open doors. And wow, it's like you're walking on sunshine. It's like the Bible's jumping out at you and people are just patting you on the back. And it's like church is exciting. And then God says, all right, it's time to go to the gym a little bit now. Got to put a little weight on the rack. Got to have you do a few squats, son. A few, you know, a few, few, uh, Hack squats, a little bench pressing now, son. We got to put some stuff on the weight, and you start to get people betraying you, people backstabbing you, people thinking about you differently. Weird stuff happens with the doctor. All this stuff happens. Why? That's the life we walk through, right? God allows us to go through trials and afflictions and difficulties. Usually, after the honeymoon, you go through some valleys. Why do we go through these valleys? I don't know the answer totally, but I do know it's for one reason. You go through valleys so you can help somebody else with their valley. Right? And so as a church, you know what? God's got to let you go through some things as a person, individually. You're going to go through some difficult times if you're going to follow the Nazarene. Just accept it. It's not going to all be sunshine and rainbows. It's going to be hardship and woe and some tears and disappointments and some tragedies and there's going to be victory and blessing and joy infinitely on top of that but there's still going to be some valleys that you go through you say when you go through that valley you know what you could do now you could help the next brother who comes along when he's coming through a valley because valleys don't last forever You walk through that valley of the shadow of death. You don't have to fear evil because there's an end to that valley. And when you come out of that other side of the valley, you know when you see that another brother or sister going through the valley with that same look on their face that you had, that same look of doubt and fear and dismay and, God, what's going on? You know what you could do? You could put your hand on their shoulder. You could say, it's going to be all right. God hasn't forgotten you. The Lord's going to take care of you. He took care of me. He could take care of you. You know what? If you've gone through something... You got a lot of ethos when you say that to that person. It's not just academic, you know. When I hear about a cancer diagnosis now and I tell somebody I'll pray for you, it ain't just an academic exercise anymore. Like I've been there, done that, sat in Sloan Kettering's waiting room, watched the amputees walk in, watched the bald kids in the stroller walk in. I got a different understanding now for people that have gone through that valley. And you've all got your millions of valleys you've gone through. Guess what? Now you can relate to people in a way that you couldn't relate to before. And as a church, you can help each other now through the valley and usher each other through the valley. And God lets you get wounded sometimes and bruised sometimes. Why? So that balm and Gilead that God poured into you can spill out as a sweet savor to somebody else in this whole body can kind of edify itself in love. That makes sense? That's the next part. Notice that if you look on your little diagram there, the, uh, where am I? The, I'm going to get to the next gate. I'm getting ahead of myself. I mean, let's go to verse 14. Got confused. The dung gate. And the dung gate is the dung gate. All right? <laughs> That's the Bible word, dung. Okay? In a few months, you might get some dung and make your petunias really thrive. Guess what? We got some dung here, and it says, and the, but the dung gate they repaired. The dung gate is about purification. It's where you took out the trash at the dung gate. And you'll please notice something, that we've got the valley gate and then the dung gate. The valley gate comes before the dung gate. Because trials and afflictions and problems, you know what they do? 
They help clean you out, Christian. They help you let go of the stuff you shouldn't be holding on to, and it helps a church get rid of the stuff that really wasn't important to begin with. The valleys help you get rid of the trash. And please notice, there is some space between the valley gate and the the dung gate. They're right not next to each other. Some of these gates are right near each other for a reason. Some of them are separated a little bit. You know why? Because it takes some time to go through a valley. But you know what God's trying to do as you go through that valley in time? He's trying to take the trash out trying to get the dross out of you and the self out of you and the stuff that shouldn't be there out of you. You know what he does at a church sometimes? You know what he does? He'll allow problems and difficulties into a church because God knows how to take out the trash. My pastors told me that. When some stuff has gone on in this congregation, you know what they said to me? He said, brother, I hate to say this to you, but God knows how to take out the trash. And I don't know, God does things, but He just he will lay things in a church and put pressure here and pressure there. And the people that want God and want the truth will stand. And the people that are like really here for the wrong reason will eventually go out with the recycling. So that's the dung gate. Now, let's go to verse 15. The next one is the gate of the fountain. See 15? But the gate of the fountain. You know what happens after you go through a valley and you get some sin and stuff out of your life? You know what comes next? Refreshing. That's the gate of the fountain. Being refreshed. You know what really refreshes us in the church? You know what refreshes us? Each other. Right? The refreshment of fellowship. Right? Go to Proverbs chapter 5. I'll show you what I mean by this because you're looking at me funny. Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter number 5. Proverbs 5. All right? Proverbs chapter 5. Let's look at verse number 16. Because we're looking at these gates through the guise of the lens of a New Testament church, right? Get that salvation down. Start winning other people to Christ. Telling the story. Finding the old paths and doing it the way God said. Going through some valleys. Getting some stuff out of your life. And then you know what happens when you've gone through something? You know what you could do for each other? You can bless each other now. When God gets the junk out of your life, you know what? You make the church stronger. When you get closer to God, you make me stronger. You make this body stronger as you get the dung out. You know what we start doing? We start refreshing each other just with our countenances and our presence. We just start strengthening each other. That iron sharpens iron. Proverbs 5.16 says, Let thy fountains be dispersed abroad and rivers of waters in the streets. God says, have I refreshed you, sister? Have I refreshed you, brother? You know what I'd like you to do? Take that now and spread it around. Spread it around. You know what happens when you get through some valleys and get rid of some dung? You could take the refreshing God's given you and you could spread it around and the whole thing's better. The whole thing is better. Go to Philemon in your New Testament. For our visitors, I talk way too fast. Right? Everybody, everybody's learning my way too fast Italian cadence, but for those of us just tuning in, I thank you for bearing with me. Philemon, verse number 7. Now, Philemon was a pastor, looks that way, um, but this could be said of any Christian. Philemon 7. Philemon 7. After all, your Timothy, Titus, all those T's, then you got Philemon. Before you get to Hebrews, you get Philemon. There's only one chapter, so it's Verse 7. And in verse 7, he said, now Paul is writing to Philemon. Paul's writing to this guy who's probably helping out a church. And he says, For we have great joy 
and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. You see that? Guys, your victories and your consolation and your love that God is working into you through the experiences and the valleys and the chastening and the things you're going through, you know what that does? It makes you a sweeter Christian. It makes you a better brother. It makes you a kinder sister. It makes you a better deacon. It makes you a better pastor. It just makes you a better brother in Christ. You know what that does in turn? You refresh my spirit. You refresh my bowels. That means the insides, like your insides, the, the heart, the, all those things on the inside. God says, I've, you're refreshing people at the gate of the fountain. Now, keep going. Go back to Nehemiah chapter 3. Making sense so far? We're just talking about building a church. This is all the steps to building a church. They're all right here, hiding in plain sight. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 26. The next one was the water gate. Not the one that Nixon went through, all right? The water gate. It says, Moreover, the Nethanims, I am not a crook, right? Dwelt in Ophel unto the place over against the water gate toward the east and to the tower that lieth out. The water gate is easy. The water gate pictures the word of God, right? We can go through verse after verse after verse that talks about the washing of the water by the Word. Now you're clean through the Word which I have spoken unto you. The Word of God is likened to water over and over again. What do we need water for? Life. You know what? They have no, idea, no confirmation of intelligent life out there because you know what they're looking for in outer space? Liquid water. When they find liquid water, then they're going to be like, oh, baby, they're going to want another $50 billion to go turn over rocks on Mars. You know why? Because liquid water is the key to life. Now, I'll help you out, NASA. I'm not, I've been teaching high school for 22 years. I'm not sure that there's intelligent life down here. So I don't know if you have to go out there and look too far. Thank you. That was free, but that was, you know, just threw that in there. I stole that joke from somebody else, so don't get mad at me. All the teenagers are just like, funny, funny, right? <laughs> But anyway, everyone here is the exception. But the water of this book is what gives life to the whole church. We got nothing if we don't have this book. We don't have any fancy programs. I don't have a smoke machine. I'm not going to like jump around. I have nothing crazy I could do. All we do is we try to take the water and just spread it around. Spread it on doorknobs. Spread it on billboards. Spread it in discipleship classes. Spread it with your family. Spread it on a Sunday morning. Spread it on a Thursday night. We're just trying to take this water because this water is what gives us life. This is the life of a church. If it ever becomes something other than the Bible, God's done with it. God says, Ichabod, the glory is departed. Oh, it might be happening and bouncing and growing and big and people and activities, but if the Word of God stops being the, the lifeblood of that church, it's drying on the vine. And uh, please notice the Watergate needed no repair. They didn't repair the Watergate because there's nothing wrong with that book. It doesn't need fixing, updating, or changing. It's perfect as God preserved it for us right there. And please notice also that the water gate is the seventh gate. The number of perfection in the Bible. The law of the Lord is perfect. You know what the water does? It perfects you. That Bible matures you and strengthens you and grows you up. Amen, amen. Verse number 28. Then we got the horse gate. All right? You know what the horse gate is about? Spiritual warfare. 
spiritual warfare. Horses are connected to warfare all over the Bible, right? Uh, the horse is prepared against the day of battle, right? The Bible says, what does Jesus Christ come riding back on? He comes riding back on a white horse, right? The Bible talks about the book of Job, a horse just pawing in the valley, just hearing the sounds of, of war and just wanting to go and charge in. Horses are connected to war. You see the, are you seeing the picture? Salvation, evangelism, the old ways, valleys, the dung gate, fellowship, then we just had the Word of God. Now you get all that under your belt. You know what you're supposed to do now, Christian? Fight the good fight. As an individual and as a church, we're supposed to get in the fight for God. Hey, take something you know and go reclaim something for me. Go witness to a lost family member. Go pray for your children. Go stop some bad habits. Go do something with what I gave you. Get in the fight, because you know what happens? If you're not fighting the enemy out there, you know what's going to happen? You're going to end up fighting each other in here. The enemy's out there. He's not in here, right? So if you don't go out there and get that fight on, you're going to start biting and devouring each other, right? Somebody said this about America, that... When we were going up against Hitler, we were strong. America, the greatest generation, we rallied the troops. We had an external enemy. And sociologists say, in the absence of an external enemy, America tore itself apart from the inside out. Right? Because now the enemy is my fellow man, the person that looks different from me. You know, the one. No, we're just biting and devouring each other as a, as a nation. And the same thing happens as a church. Hey, the enemy's out there. Jersey's a big state, a lot of lost people in New Jersey. We got to get out there and go bring the gospel and there's families and people that need help and let's get let's let's keep the fight in the right perspective. Let's not fight amongst each other. Let's get in the right fight, all right? And then verse 29 is the east gate. You know what the east gate's about? I know you know. Eli knows. The second coming of Christ. Because in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says that Jesus Christ, one day very soon, is going to walk through that eastern gate and sit on that throne in Jerusalem, coming soon to a city near you. So Christian and church, you got to remember, the second coming of Christ has got to be put in your focus. It's not all about down here. Jesus is coming He's coming, and He's going to make things right. And if we ever lose sight of the fact that He's coming back, it's going to mess us up. Youngest church in the Bible, Thessalonians. Paul's there for three weeks. Baby church. You know what he talks about in the book of Thessalonians over and over and over again? The rapture, the rapture, the rapture, the rapture. Every chapter of 1 Thessalonians talks about Jesus' coming. You know why? you got to get it from the beginning. This world is not my home. Jesus, you're coming. Let me redeem the time because you're coming soon. A church needs to remember that. And lastly, verse 31, it says, After him repaired Micaiah, the goldsmith's son, unto the place of the Nethanims and of the merchants over against the gate Mifkad and to the going up to the corner. The last gate here is the Mifkad gate, which means the appointed place of inspection, judgment. And at the end of this whole process, church, you got to remember that God is going to see how you built 
at the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to take a Christian's work and he's going to see how did you build since you've been saved. I have a, I have a STEM class in the school I teach. You know what they build? They build these bridges. And they spend all this time with popsicle sticks and engineering and gear ratios and stuff. I don't understand at all that my freshmen talk about it. And they build these bridges. You know what that bridge is being built for? Because they know the teacher in about a month or so is going to put that thing on the scale. And he has this weighted bucket that he puts on that, he puts on that bridge to see if it's going to stand the test. There's a judgment that's going to come to see how well did you build that bridge with everything I gave you and taught you. And you know what you got to remember? Is that at the end of this Christian life, it's not about heaven or hell. It's going to be about what reward can I give you in eternity because I'm going to see with my eyes of fire at the judgment seat of Christ, how well did you build with what I gave you and what I taught you? And the last gate is the gate of inspection, the gate of judgment. And notice the last three gates are all together. You see that? The horse gate, the east gate, the inspection gate. They're all prophetic. You see it? Horse gate, battle of Armageddon. East gate, return of Jesus Christ to his throne. Inspection gate, judgment to come. They're all coming, folks. They're all coming. They're separated, aren't they? Because this is stuff that's all yet to happen. They're all future events. And the church always needs to remember that we finish at the judgment seat of Christ. Now go to Nehemiah chapter 4. I just got a few little points left, and then we will be done, I promise. Um, next, we got opposition. So they do a great work. They build some gates. They repair some walls. They're humming along. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, we see the opposition of the adversaries. And folks, <laughs> I think Dean Martin said, don't be stupid. It just wouldn't be smart, Right? Don't be stupid spiritually. There is an enemy that wants to stop you from building. And they're building, they're humming, they're fixing up the walls. And in Nehemiah 4 verse 1, the Bible says, But it came to pass. (laughs) Don't be surprised when the enemy sticks his big butt in your building. He's, oh, you're doing something good? But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren in the army of Samaria and said, What do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. You know what the enemy wants to do first? He wants to mock your building. What are you doing? You're sitting in a library with 30 people studying the Bible. Are you out of your mind? What are you doing? You're going to kneel down and pray and talk to an invisible man in the ceiling? What are you doing? What are you doing? Why don't you just take that thing you want to take? What are you doing resisting? What are you doing trying to stop? What are you doing listening to the guy talk to you about Jesus? What are you doing? That's the enemy just chirping on your ear, mocking you. What are you doing? You think you're going to build something? He's trying to get you to quit. You might be right from the victory, but he's trying to get you to quit. Now, in verse number 6 it says, So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth. You know what the enemy wants to do? You got a mind to work. You say, Lord, I want to build something. The devil wants to change your mind. 
He wants to wear you down so you give up thinking about building anything for God. So you know what you need to do? Verse 16. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the habergeons, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which builded on the wall, and they that bear burdens with those that laid it, every one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. He said, you know what you got to do? Prepare yourself to build in a battle. Because you're in a battle, and you're building on enemy territory. So he said, okay, we're going to have a spear in this hand, and a travel in this hand. Lay your masonry like this and just be ready for the enemy like that. And that's the lesson. You're building for God, but you're in a battle. You've got to have your sword ready at hand as you build for God. Don't just go to sleep. Know you're in a fight and the enemy's after you. Because what the enemy wants to do, if you go to chapter 6, we're hurrying along here. If you go to chapter 6, it says, Now it came to pass when, verse 1, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. You should be saying, Oh no, if the enemy starts saying that to you. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messages unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work so that I not, cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times. You know what the enemy wants to do? He'll do anything to just get you to stop. Just stop building. Just slow down. Let's just talk about this for a second. No, I'm doing a great work. I can't stop. I can't slow down. Folks, don't let the enemy slow you down or stop you. Amen. Keep building. You're doing a great work. I don't care what the world says. You are doing a great work in your families, in your neighborhoods, in your personal life, in your churches. If you're applying this book the best way you know how, you know what the Holy Spirit's saying right now? You're doing a great work. Don't come down. Don't back off. Don't let up. No surrender. Only go forward. That's what he's saying right now. Don't back up and don't give up and don't slow down. Now, go to chapter 7. Another great truth. And again, these last ones are quick. We're almost at the conclusion here. Chapter 7 shows us that to be a godly leader, you only need two attributes. Josh talked about one of them last week. Got to be faithful, and you got to fear God. That's it. See chapter 7, verse 1? Now it came to pass when the wall was built, and I had set up the doors and the porters and the singers and the Levites were appointed, that I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the ruler of the palace, charge over Jerusalem. And that's a great picture of just building a church. Guy does the work. You know what he does? Turn it over to somebody else. Right? That's the dream, folks. Raise up. I'm not looking to build a kingdom here. Raise us up. Train up some guys. You know what? If the Lord would tarry and the Lord would allow it, say, all right, man, you run the show. I'm going to go build something somewhere else. Try to do it again, right? I mean, that's, that's just the pattern right there. That's the model right there. And so he puts that on him, and he says about this guy, you know why he committed that work to this guy? He says, for he was a faithful man and feared God above many. That was it. I don't know what was in his bank account. I don't know what school he went to. I don't know anything about his education. But I know he was faithful, he had some stick, and he feared God in a way that everybody else didn't fear God, like an extraordinary way. That's all you need, folks, to be a godly leader. The Bible says it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Just keep going. That's a rarity these days.
And then verse number three, it says, And I said unto them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun be hot. And while they stand by, let them shut the doors and bar them and appoint watches of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, everyone in his watch and everyone to be over against his house. He's saying a godly leader has to watch. You want to be a leader of your home in the church? Watch. Pay attention. Watch unto prayer, the Bible says. Watch your house. Watch the walls. Watch. The Bible says leaders in the church are overseers. They're watching out for wolves. They're watching out for enemies. That's what a shepherd does. He stands on the outside of that flock and watches for someone that's going to try to creep in and steal the sheep. Got to watch, Dad. Got to watch, preacher. Got to watch. Now, chapter 8 is the last chapter I'm going to touch on. Chapters 8 to 10 are the ministry of a New Testament church right there. Man, you're going to see some parallels. We saw how the church was built with the gates, but now how the church ministers is right here in chapter 8. Because we're going to have Ezra stand up on a pulpit of wood at the water gate and preach the Word of God. That's what we do every Sunday, every Thursday. Somebody gets up in front of a block of wood and declares things from the Bible. So watch right now how much this is supposed to be like our church. I hope it is. Nehemiah 8.1 And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. Number one, they were unified. They were all gathered together with the singular purpose to hear what the Bible had to say. That's what it, is that why you're here? <laughs> sometimes people come with, you know, I know I've been, been at this a little while. Everybody's got, people got agendas sometimes, right? I hope you're here, right? People should go to church. Why? For the singular reason to see what God has to say. That's, that's, that's the vehicle God ordained. Number two. It says in verse number 3, And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate. Interesting that it's at the water gate. From the morning until midday. That's a long service. That's a lot of reading. Before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. You know what they were? Number 2, that New Testament church in picture. They were attentive. They paid attention to the Bible. They paid attention to the Word of God. Are you paying attention? First, they had a single purpose, and two, they had a single focus. They were there for one reason, I want to learn that book, and they were attentive to what that book had to say. Number three, verse number five, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Well, I've been in churches where we've done that. We have everybody stand up for the reading of God's Word out of respect. That's, that's a blessing. That's a good thing to do. But what I see here is just, in a broader sense, they were respectful. They stood out of esteem and admiration for the Bible. That's what a church is supposed to be. They're there for the Bible. They want to pay attention to the Bible. You know what? They tremble at the words of that book. They have an esteem. The Bible says, To this man will I look, to him that trembleth at my word. Number four, verse number seven. 
Also Jeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shebatai, Hodijah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites. Those were the elders, the priests, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. You know what they had that a church should also have? They were a teaching church. The elders helped the younger, and people were helping each other learn the Word of God and understand what it meant. That's what we're here for, folks. I can't tell you you're going to come here and find a spouse. I can't promise you that. But know what I can't promise you? If you come here, you'll walk out knowing the Bible and what it can do for you better than when you, when you walked in. That's the goal. Verse number 9, it says in 9, And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, that's the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. They were passionate. They wept when they heard the word of God. When was the last time you wept over a Bible verse? Me too, I'm outing myself too. <laughs> when was the last time you wept over a prayer promise? Or wept over something that God gave you when you needed it? And you said, wow, Lord, and you held on to that like a lifesaver. Or you were drowning in the ocean. God gave you something in your reading. He just, that was like, whew, I need that. You wept over it and your Bible pages were stained with tears. These people were passionate. We're supposed to be passionate. And finally, verse number 10, it says, Then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. You know what the last thing they did to our? They were a giving church. They sent the word to people that needed it. That's where we're supposed to be, whether it's our friends in Haiti, the Philippines, or the neighboring towns and houses where we live. We're trying to get the Word of God to people that need it. That's the ministry of a New Testament church. Come with the same focus, the same energy, and the same direction. In conclusion, one big idea I want you to go home on. A big idea from the book of Nehemiah. And it's this. What is the formula for godly success? Anybody want godly success? All right, if not, I don't know why you'd listen to me yap for 45 minutes. But if you want godly success, you've got to do three things that you see in the book of Nehemiah. Number one, all right? If you're going to be a worker for God, you've got to be a prayer warrior. You have got to be a prayer warrior. That's the first thing I see. The book of Nehemiah is full of references to all kinds of prayer. In fact, chapter 1, you know where the book starts? It starts with Nehemiah praying. You want to look at the last? Just look at the last verse of the Bible. I'll skip ahead a little bit. Look at the very last sentence of the book of Nehemiah. Chapter 13, the last little phrase. The last little phrase of chapter 13 is, Remember me, O my God, for good. The book, literally, and if you wanted to study prayer, you could study the book of Nehemiah. There's all types of prayer. Quick, exclamatory prayers. When you don't have time to bend your knees, he's just got to be like, oh, Lord, help me. You ever do those kind of prayers? And there's, other, there's all kinds of prayers in the book of Nehemiah. But the book about working for God literally begins and ends with prayer. 
So you're not going to be much of a worker for God if you're not a prayer warrior with God. You got to pray and work, pray and work. Hudson Taylor, I said this, I think last week or last time, do, said, do not have your concert first and then tune your instruments. He said, begin the day with the word of God in prayer and get first of all into harmony with him. Pray, 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 pray and work, pray and work. That's the message of Nehemiah. That's first. Number two, if you're going to build for God, you're going to experience pain. It's going to cost you something. You're going to experience pain. Somebody said one time, oh no, Paul said it, right? A great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. You want to do something for God? Really do something for God? Of God? Devil's going to get your number. Doesn't mean you won't be victorious, but there's going to be difficulties, right? All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's in the Bible. No pain, no gain. We used to say that at the gym, right? No pain, no gain. If you're going to build for God, you know what's going to happen when you lift those weights? You're going to feel pressure, and it's going to hurt. And in that rebuilding process, that's where the muscle and the strength comes. And go to Luke chapter 14. We're going to end right here on this verse. You got to be a prayer warrior. You got to be prepared for the difficulties that are going to come. And when they come, you got to persevere. See, what's the formula for godly success? Pray, be prepared for the pain, and persevere. Persevere, persevere. When the enemy says quit, you got to keep going, brethren. Somebody said in a poem one time, often the struggler has given up when he might have captured the victor's cup. Might be right there. Luke 14, look at verse number 25. I'm going to read this and make a comment and then pray. Luke 14, 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That'll thin out the crowd. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower sitteth not down first and counteth the cost? whether he have sufficient to finish it. Lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish it. Salvation cost Christ everything. And you, nothing. But if you're going to follow Jesus Christ like a disciple, it's going to cost you something. And he says, Be prepared. It's going to cost something. Because if you're not willing to persevere and continue, people are going to look at your Christian life and go, you're a joke. You're a reproach. They're going to mock you because you started something, but you didn't finish it. Whoever built a house by stopping after the foundation? You ever drive around see a foundation in the ground? You know what that is? That's a failure. That's a testimony to somebody's failure and inability to see the job through. I grew up in their place, and there was just a foundation for years. I used to drive my bike around the neighborhood and go, why isn't there a house here? It was a reproach. It was a mockery. People tagged it up with graffiti. It was like, why is this foundation here? Somebody put the foundation down, but nobody saw it through and counted the cost to finish the work. Brethren, don't be a reproach to the name of Christ. Keep going. 
Whoever built any muscle by giving up on the gym and not lifting weights, right? I want to be big. I want to be jacked, but oh, I don't want to lift. I don't want to. What, you want to eat ding dongs? I know you like those ding dongs, right? And lastly, whoever, and I'll say this, I'm preaching to the choir, whoever was a successful Christian who quit church, I haven't found any yet. I'm trying. I'm looking. I've got a list of people that quit, but you know what? None of them will ever amount to anything for God because this is the Lord's gym. This is where you build. This is where you learn. This is the pillar and ground of truth where you build those walls and become that tower that you could do something great for God. So don't quit. Pray, prepare for the pain, and persevere. Amen? And that's the book of Nehemiah in a nutshell. Let's have a word of prayer.